John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. Lord God, your word has been read. And we thank you as we, as we just have. We thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, we pray that as your word has been read, we pray, Lord God, that you fulfill your promise that your word would not go forth and return void. We pray, Lord God, that your word would take deeper root in our hearts and in our minds. We pray, Lord God, that you would renew our thinking and our feelings and our emotions. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in our whole person to draw us into conformity with your word and your will. Lord God, that we might know you more, that we might know the depth of your love for us more, and that we might reflect that to the world around. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, you know, I've been looking forward to this section of scripture for at least a year. And then that was like a remarkable then letdown this week when I got to this week after looking forward to these six verses for a year and thought, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm just going to mess this up. I feel even just now, I feel like Mike read the word well and I just want to say, okay, amen, go home. Um, we're going to try to attack this text. If we're going try to try to look at these six verses in one sentence, I think we might say that Christ is praying that the church would be unified for the sake of its witness. Christ is praying that the church would be unified for the sake of, his, of the church's witness. A unified church is a great testimony. And that's really powerful, you know, because we spend there, there's a lot of really great books out there on uh, evangelism. There's a lot of great books out there on apologetics. And there's a lot that is worth reading and worth reflecting on. And yet here in John 17, Jesus says that a unified church is in itself an apologetic, evangelistic testimony 
for that Jesus Christ is the divine son of God. And if you step back for a minute from this, this kind of one-sentence definition and think about our culture, even here, you know, this week in America, it's worth asking, has there ever been more timeliness and opportunity for the church to reflect that it is different than the world through its unity? I am ready for Abraham Lincoln to crawl up out of the grave and read A House Divided once more. Her latest uh, New York Times bestseller, Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations, Yale Law School professor Amy Chua writes, it's a rather long quote, but I think it's worth reading. She writes, humans are tribal. We need to belong to groups. We crave bonds and attachments which is why we love clubs, teams, fraternity, and family. Almost no one is a hermit. Even monks and friars belong to orders. But the tribal instinct is not just an instinct to belong, it is also an instinct to exclude. When groups feel threatened, they retreat into tribalism. They close ranks and become more insular, more defensive, more punitive, more us versus them. In America today, every group feels this way to some extent. Whites and blacks, Latinos and Asians, men and women, Christians, Jews and Muslims, straight people and gay people, liberals and conservatives, all feel their groups are being attacked, bullied, persecuted, discriminated against. Of course, one group claims to to feeling threatened and voiceless are often met by another group's derision because it discounts their feelings of persecution. But such is political tribalism. We live in a divided age. It's amazing, you know, this week I was, um, I was at the YM, I was at the YMCA, I took a break at one point, went to the YMCA and I'm there on the treadmill and I'm watching, you know, you know, the hearings that are going on this week and it was amazing, okay, to, for, to hear people that have been doing political commentary for a long time you know, say, in 40 years of being in Washington, I've never seen this kind of division. I don't know if that was true, but I thought it was an amazing statement. Our culture today feels incredibly divided. And that offers the church a remarkable opportunity to shine forth the power of the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see in this text is Christ's prayer for unity. It's the third and final section of this prayer. Jesus has been, you know, praying. We've been in this section for maybe eight, eight, nine weeks now in this section of his prayer. He's hours from the cross. And again, I just submit to you, it's amazing hours from the cross to see what is on the forefront of the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. Hours from the cross. He is praying for Christians that have not become Christians yet. Right? I mean, he says, you know, pray for those who believe through your message. So it's really kind of neat here, right? Here's Jesus praying for churches that have not yet been established, for people groups that have not yet been reached with the gospel, for the faith of people who have not yet been born. 2,000 years ago, there, Jesus Christ was praying for Grace Community Church. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was praying for Christians all around the globe right here in this prayer. It's neat. This is his prayer for Grace Community Church today. This is his prayer for Westminster Chapel in London today. This is his prayer for Kabwata Baptist Church in Zambia today. This is Christ's prayer for the universal church of Jesus Christ in all places at all times. It's an amazing prayer. 
that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may also be in us. Verse 22, he comes back to the same thing, saying that we may be perfectly one. It's a shocking statement. Jesus isn't just praying that we can, like, play nice. The way, you know, sometimes you try to convince yourselves you go to a family party or holiday that you don't really want to go to, and you're nervous, and you think, well, let's just be nice and get through the night. I'm sure none of you have been there. It's not what he prays. He says that we may be perfectly one. I mean, this is one of those prayers of Jesus that I read and I think, is he serious? Has he hung out in a Baptist church lately? Or any church, for that matter? We live in a tribalistic world, right? We, 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 we are separated by language. We are separated by socioeconomic status. We're separated by background. We're separated by culture and by government. And, and, and sometimes we're just separated naturally. Sometimes we choose to separate ourselves, right? Sometimes in ways that are totally okay. Sometimes in ways that are not okay. And Jesus steps into this divided tribalistic world and he utters this remarkable prayer two things that jesus speaks into this this tribalistic world that i think we've lived in since the garden first thing jesus says is that he is going to save people from every tongue tribe and nation he doesn't say that in this text he says that elsewhere he's going to save people from every tongue tribe and nation think about that for a minute jesus is saying that there is not a people group under the stars that won't be represented in heaven you know if, if you're if you haven't gotten really into like multi-ethnic food yet you're going to have a chance it's going to be great all right he's saying that ever, there's going to be people from every ethnic group in, in heaven you know, the new heavens, the new earth, when we're there with Jesus, is going to be this mosaic that we live in for eternity. Remarkable. But he goes a step further in this prayer. He doesn't just say that everyone is going to be there. And that he says, but my prayer is that you will be one. That this diverse mosaic of people from different cultures, each of whom were born with different values as products of that particular culture or subculture, right? He says that they would be one as the Father and I are one. His prayer is that our witness, the church's life, the church's DNA would reflect the relationship between the eternal Father and Son. It's shocking prayer. Jesus and the Father are one in essence. One God existing eternally in three persons. We saw, we saw it a long time ago in the words of the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Diversity and unity in the heart of the Godhead. And here it's prayers that we would enjoy this same measure of unity as he and the Father. And I got to tell you, from the outset, if Jesus himself didn't pray this, I think there's no way it would ever happen. Because we are just that divided as a world. We are that, most of us, we would admit that we're divided within ourselves. What we want, what we don't want, what we think is right, what we think is not right. Let alone divided as we, as we get a group of messy people together. We often say, if you're looking for a perfect church, the minute you join it, it will no longer be perfect. 
because you're there. Congratulations. How's that for like a membership class, right? Thank you for making our church more messy along with everyone else. But that's what happens, right? Jesus wants the church to reflect the unity that the God and the Father and God the Son have had for eternity. And on one hand, if we, if we really wanted to, you know, kind of step out of the immediate text and get theological, we would say that in one sense, this has already happened. In one sense, right? Because we are united to God and to each other by virtue of our faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. That wherever you live, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and that has bonded you to God and to each other. But there is also a sense in which this prayer has not fully been realized. There is a sense in which we must continue to strive for, sacrifice for, humble ourselves for, pray for, repent, and beg for this prayer to be answered. Because all you have to do is go and read the letters in the New Testament and see what it looks like when a church is divided. And see the pain and the agony of the the apostles when they're writing to these churches that are divided and fighting and conflicted. And and so you realize there's a sense in which, well, in one sense, this prayer's already been fulfilled. In the other sense, it really hasn't. And if you look at your own church background, whatever church background that is, you are surely filled with stories of division. Church splits, pastors fired, relationships lost, people arguing. And we had a really great opportunity uh, in the spring. Um, Our elders joined the elders of Chapel Point, and we had a joint elder meeting. And it was like the coolest thing in the world, right? Because, you know, we got together, I think it was in May or June, and we got together and we worshiped together and we had a devotional together and we did our elder business in the same room. And then we prayed for each other. And as simple as this may sound to you, I have personally never heard of two elder boards getting together and fellowshipping and praying and talking in that way. It's like rare enough you can get two pastors to like hang out together, you know, and be social. Forget about like two elder boards. It was awesome. And I sat there and thought, why is it I have been a pastor for this long and I've never heard of this happening in my immediate circle? And I say that like to my own shame, to my own own. It's just as much as anyone else's. Unity is a rare thing in the body of Christ. Jesus prays for unity. Then he gives us a picture of the nature of unity he's praying for. We look at this, right? And there's been a lot, a lot of literature written on, oh, Jesus prays for unity. Therefore, we ought to dot, dot, dot. Because sometimes we're trying to be good Christians and we see this prayer and we say, okay, well, I want to fulfill this prayer. What do I need to do? And there's a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that structure is going to be the key to achieving that unity that Jesus is praying for. And so we look for structure and systems to, to um, get us that unity. So some argue that on the basis of this prayer, we should only have house churches, because, you know, we should have small house churches with no more than a couple families because, you know, that is going to help us have this kind of unity. And I always laugh. I'm like, well, if that's your solution to unity, we just got to keep it, you know, four or five families that can fit in the living room. Clearly, you've, you've been in a family much different than most of ours because it doesn't take a whole lot of people to have a division, especially on Super Bowl Sunday. 
Others say that, you know, in order to fulfill this church, we have to come up with another structural solution. The solution is we need to only have one service. Because the minute we have two worship services in a church, we have divided the church. And I always think that one's kind of silly too, because I'm like, okay, gosh, even at a church our size, let alone a church bigger than ours, which there are a lot of, you can come to church for six months and not see someone. Because they come in a different door, they, you know, they sit in a different spot. I love a few this morning, like you're sitting in a different place. I'm like, wow, you might see some people you've never met, right? Go to different, come in a different door, sit in a different place, go to a different Bible study hour. You cannot see someone that is regularly fellowshiping the church for six months. So it's hard to say that just being, let alone if you're in a church of 3,000. So it's hard to say, well, gee, if we're just all in the same place at the same time, that gives unity. I don't know. I don't think that. We, you know, there were a lot of people at the same place at the same time in the Senate hearing this week, and it was not a unified room. Being in the same place at the same time is not the silver bullet to achieve this prayer. Others look at this prayer and they go in a direction that really makes me uncomfortable. They say, we just need to stop talking about all this doctrine stuff. Because doctrine divides. It sounds like a bumper sticker. Doctrine divides. And so we just, and they'll say, so we just need to just talk about Jesus, which is a remarkable just, right? Let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just talk about Jesus and nothing else. And I always want to respond to someone and say, well, does the New Testament just talk about Jesus and nothing else? I mean, while the desire may be in one sense admirable and admittedly, here we say that we at Grace, one of our, our values is Christ-centered worship, right? We, we, want you to, we, we want Jesus to be the focus of all of our teaching, we want the, of all of our music, of everything we do. So the focus on Christ is eminently biblical, yet it is impossible to read the scriptures and not see them speak clearly, consistently, and powerfully to a other whole host of theological and ethical issues. And so if we end up denying and saying, well, we're not going to talk about any of those, then, then we end up denying a huge part of the revelation that God has given us. And in the name of unity, we've actually lost a deep unity brought about by a shared faith in Jesus Christ and his revelation of himself. Scripture speaks clearly and consistently in favor of human life and against racism and misogyny. Scripture speaks clearly and consistently on God's intention for marriage. What happens when we take the Lord's Supper and God's sovereignty over all things? Doctrine sometimes does divide, and yes, Sometimes unnecessarily so. But it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. Sometimes doctrinal division is really division over the difference between truth and error. Are you a Christian or are you not? Do you believe that Jesus is God's only son? That he is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved? That he died a painful death on the cross to save us and reconcile us? Sometimes it's a matter of truth. Yes, and sometimes admittedly it is a matter of our own pride. And so we've got to examine which is which. We might do a little bit of that next week. Fourth century Bishop Augustine wrote, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. As we look to the kind of unity God the Father enjoys with God the Son, 
we start to see the structure isn't going to save us, but we start to see what, what he might be getting at. And, and we're not going to go through all the particular examples. I'd encourage you, go home, over lunch, in your life group, sit down and talk about when God says he wants us to be one as he and the Father are one, what does the unity between the Father and the Son look like? Because if we're trying to arrive at application, we probably want to start by saying, what is the measure of unity that we see in the scriptures between the Father and the Son that we might imitate it and reflect it and pray for it? We're going to talk about two this morning. First, we see a unity of love between God the Father and God the Son. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. God, you know, it's not just a part of who God is. It's not like God says, you know, he goes to his hat drawer and says, I'm going to put on love today. No, like, he is love. We see this love active in the Father's relationship with the Son. John 3, we're told that the Father loves the Son. John 5, we're told that the Father loves the Son. John 15, 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, love is actively flowing between the Father and between the Son. Jesus is abiding, resting, secure in God the Father's love. And so together as a group of individuals made one through faith in Christ, we must strive to abide in God's love for us and for each other. And this is really challenging because if we're honest, God's love is remarkable. We sing songs about it. And he says, and so as he calls us to be one as he is one, he is in a real sense calling us to enter into his love and love each other with that love, which I think looks very different than the love that we are used to experiencing outside in the world. Listen to God's definition of love, one of many, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. If we want to be one as the Father and the Son are one, this is the kind of love we are called to have for everyone else in this room. And that might be the place where some of us this week need to repent right there. Is there, is there some way in which you have been specifically falling short of God's definition of love with someone else in your life? Is there someone whose forgiveness you need to seek for the sake of love and unity in the church? Maybe it's someone you've harbored ill will against. Maybe it's someone you've criticized unjustly or tried to injure. Let me suggest practically, if more than 50% of your conversation about someone else is negative... You are not fulfilling the First Corinthians 13 definition of love. If that's, if, if more than, and let me be clear. If more than 50% of your conversation about another believer is negative, you're probably not fulfilling this definition that the text calls us to. God loved us enough to send his son to die in our place, to cleanse us of our sins, and to reconcile us to himself. 
He loved us enough to pay the penalty for all of the ways in which we fail to love him and fail to love others perfectly. But once we are in Christ, he gives us his word and his spirit to help us love with the same kind of love that we have received. So if we want to be united like the Father and the Son are united, we must strive to, for love that reflects his love. And you see that, right? I mean, I mean, you know, the testimony of the gospel is that we would be so transformed by God's love for us that we would give each other a love mirroring that, right? I mean, think of the, the parable of the unforgiving debtor, right? He's been forgiven all of these things. He's been shown remarkable grace. And he is judged because then he, he, he doesn't give it to someone else. And, you know, the way Ray Ortland says it, you know, the gospel doctrine should create in him a gospel culture. He has received infinite grace. He should now strive to give grace. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's the goal. Called to be united in our love. Called to be united in mission. Have you noticed? Show me an example in the scripture of when the Trinity competes with each other. Show me an example when the Trinity fights with each other. Show me an example in Scripture when the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, argue about what they should do or how they should do it. Well, there's not one, right? God the Trinity never competes. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit are always marching in the same direction. Have you noticed that? There's this unity in creation and in redemption, right? In creation, what? let us make man in our image. We, you know, I would argue you see every member present in God's work of creation. You know, God the Father, you know, choosing this creation, it being done through the, you know, God the, God the Son, the Word, speaking it into existence. God the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. God is active moving together in creation it's the same thing in redemption we're all they're united we are born again by the power of god the holy spirit through faith in the death of and the resurrection of god the son according to the election of god the father god is always working harmoniously harmoniously in the work of redemption there is this missional unity at the heart of God. Never competing. We saw this just last week, right? In Jesus' prayer. What he said, he said, I have kept and guarded them. Now I pray that you would keep and guard them. Like, he's always working. There's this unity of activity. Unity of redemptive mission. And this is, I, I actually think this is the area where a lot of, the, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of good churches really struggle. We struggle. You've probably seen it. We have churches that, 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 that don't agree on programming. Churches that don't agree on direction. Churches that don't agree on outreach. Churches that think that, well, you know, um, we shouldn't do outreach because God is sovereign. And so they both misunderstand the Bible and they misunderstand John Calvin. Or they agree on doctrine, but they, don't, they divide over programming. Which in and of itself just sounds really sad, right? We agree on all the things that saved us. 
We agree on who God is. We agree that he's coming back. We agree that we are sinners in need of a savior's savior. We agree that, you know, we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. We agree we should, we have been given these sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we agree about what they even mean. But, you know, we can't agree about whether or not we should, you know, have a Wednesday night program and what that should look like. And we're really upset about that. Doesn't that just sound pathetic? Sad? Tragic? Maybe not pathetic. Tragic? Matthew 28, Jesus gives this, this broad direction to the church, broad yet specific. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See that again there? The name of the Godhead, together unified, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is this clear, broad direction that God gives. And there's a lot of things that are not within that direction. He doesn't tell us about life groups and small groups and Bible study hour and Wednesday night or Thursday night or Sunday night or how loud the music should be or how soft the music should be or whether we should have pews or chairs. He doesn't tell us about a lot of things that, we're gonna, that we fight over, and we'll talk about that next week. Lord willing, next week we're going to have a, a sermon on absolutes, convictions, and preferences which so often divide us. Um, but he gives us this clear, broad, broad, broad direction. You've, God wants every Christian to be going into the scriptures and to going out into the world. He wants every Christian to be getting into the scriptures that they could know him and know his will, all that he has commanded. And he wants every Christian to be going across the street or around the world to preach and teach and live out the gospel of Jesus. Going, true discipleship. You know, sometimes people make the mistake, right? There's this like really annoying thing sometimes that we fall into. We fall into this belief that evangelism and discipleship are two different things. And, you know, we, 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 we pit like growing to know God more and evangelism as if they're competing. And yet true discipleship is a balance between growing deeper into the word and going to reach others with the gospel. He gives us a broad definition for our lives and our churches of how we fit in into his redemptive mission, right? That's why I think this is important. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are always unified in their work of redemption. He is calling us to be unified as he is unified. So we too then are called to be unified in our work in his redemptive mission in the world. What a gift it is when the church unites around the broad direction of we're called to go and make disciples. And doesn't let the application of that direction become a source of division. Here at Grace, we're, we're starting to balance those two priorities Jesus gives us. And, and we're, and we're um, praying for unity in the application of them. You, saw, you heard, if you were with us, last January, you know, last January, um, the great Keith Behrens, our former elder chair, got up. And he said, you know, and... and because one of the things we talked about is it's always good to know what season you're in as a church, right? And so he got up and said, we are in a season of change where we are trying to gain a healthier balance of growing to know Jesus more and going out to reach more people for Jesus. And so we're trying to wrestle through corporately and individually being free, equipped, and encouraged to reach our community with the love of Christ. And it's fair to say that this is not an easy transition. Transition. 
Because when you say we're in a season of change and you live in West Michigan, ah! You know, change never feels good for many of us, right? You know, it's often change. Like, you look at, like, a psychologist thing of, like, the biggest stressors in life, and they all involve change, right? Starting a new job, moving, big life change, you know, um... The most, so so change, change often doesn't feel good. And change, I think, in and of itself, always offers an easy opportunity for division. Because when things just are the way they've always been, people just kind of accept it, good, bad, or indifferent. But then the minute you say, well, we're going to change something, it's an easy opportunity for us all to say, I don't, I don't know if I, that, that challenges me, that makes me uncomfortable. Maybe just say, I think I have a better idea. And maybe you do. Which is why we always need to go back to the unity that God, the Trinity, enjoys in the work of redemption and prayerfully strive to imitate it. Knowing that this often requires humility, submission, prayer, love, and grace. Unity of mission required the Son of God to submit to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it requires love, humility, and submission among brothers and sisters the world over today. But when you have a taste of what that missional unity feels like, you're going to want more. Last year, last December, we did this awesome thing called Christmas Fest, right? And I'm going to go so far as to say I think Christmas Fest was one of, if not the most significant events we did as a body last year. Because it 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 was an event where in December, over... Over 200, 250 of us, I forget, came together to use our gifts on a single night to invite unbelievers into the life of our church and to bless them. And it was one of those rare events where, you know, you had like, you know, 13-year-olds working next to, you know, octogenarians. Yay, church, right? We, um, it was a bridge-building event to reach the community for Christ. And we had 400-plus people in the community walk through the doors and feel loved and valued. And I would bet that some of them have never walked into a church building before. And their first memory of walking into a church building was laughter, fun, a good meal, and a gift. We weren't divided by age. We weren't divided by preference. We were united in trying to help people feel valued as they walked in the door of a church building. And it was exciting to see the smile on people's faces. It was a gift of grace to be completely united in mission. Even if it was for just that one night. The way the Father and the Son are united in mission. What would it look like if it was like that all the time? We're just united in moving forward as God's hands and feet, ambassadors of a new covenant, agents of grace and redemption in this world. Jesus calls us to be one as he and the Father are one. And The stakes are really high. One of the things that's easy for for us to forget when we accept, embrace, or contribute to division in the church, one of the things that's easy for us to forget is that the stakes always go beyond us. The effect always resonates beyond us so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
Jesus is not praying that the church would be unified because he's looking for some like kumbaya moment, right? Where we all sit, or, sit around the campfire and say, unity is great because unity is great. Let's hold hands and sway back and forth to some, you know, metronome rhythm. I don't know if I used the word metronome right, Brian, but he'll tell me after. It's not unity for the sake of unity. It's unity for the sake of witness. Our unity as a body testifies that Jesus is God. And notice, he doesn't promise that our unity will automatically save people. He doesn't say that. But he promises that our unity will cause people to believe that he is not just another human being, but that he has a divine origin. And, I mean, again, step back. Our country is fraying at the seams. And if you want to argue with me about that, well, we can argue later. But I just, I just think it's self-evident. Our country is fraying at the seams. When people hear about church splits and church gossip and Christians condemning each other, what do they conclude? You guys are just like us. The church is just like my soccer club. It's just like my family. It's just like the brokenness. There's the same brokenness there I see everywhere else. And apparently this God and this Holy Spirit and this Bible you talk so much about hasn't made a lick of difference. That's the world's conclusion. Yet when, when, when people see the church divided in a mini tribe after mini tribe, they conclude that we're just like the world. But when we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are one as the Father and the Son are one. We offer the world something it doesn't see anywhere else that points to Jesus. You know, some, two weeks ago, I gave, I gave a quote by James Montgomery Boyce where he says, the more we become unlike the world, the more we become attractive to it. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, is that really true? Like, I mean, why, why would the world, I, I don't get that. Why would the world find anything that we could do attractive? And it was a great question. I said, because think about it, in this context, when we are more unlike the world, when we are unified across political party, across age, across preference, when people that want loud music or soft music or choir or a worship band or, you know, whatever, when we, when we like are unified, when we love and forgive and extend grace and speak well, when we're slow, slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen, when we forgive as we've been forgiven, when we love and support one another, even when it's sacrificial, when it costs, when we give not to receive but just to bless, what are we doing? We are, we are, we are living out a body life that you do not find in other places. Why are so many people attracted to some of these like fad gyms, right? CrossFit. Orange Theory Fitness. Why are people attracted? Because people are craving that sense of unity. We're made to crave it. There's actually something in the human DNA that knows this is not right. We should be, un and I just want to be with people where I can be unified. What is it like when the church shows forth a unity that spans all of these differences and divisions? We offer something that you will not see anywhere else on this planet. And that testifies that Jesus is God's son. When we don't let ethnicity, money, politics, school choice, views on the end times divide us, testify that Jesus is God's son. Unity in the church is a powerful testimony that we can all work towards by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about it in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord God, that though we were divided and separated from you, that you drew us near through the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you have made us one with you through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, I just pray that you would help us as a local expression of your body to be united, to be together, united in the gospel of grace, one as you are the father of one. God, I just pray that, God, if there are any sources of division in our hearts, in our relationships, God, among other believers, I pray that you would root them out. That you'd help us to love as we have been loved and to reflect a unity that can only happen as your prayer is answered, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, hey, hope you stick around uh, to go to, we've got a bunch of Bible study hour classes, you know, uh, downstairs or behind this room. If it is one of your first Sundays at Grace, love to have you right after the service join some of us in the connections room, that glass room in the foyer. Love to get a chance to know you, hear your story a bit, answer any questions you may have. Stand together and be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his counts upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen.